0: Ask God's blessing on the Word of God. Dear Lord, thank you very much. We'd ask that you would bless our time in your Word. The benefits the writer of Hebrews um, brings before us, we'd ask that we'd face these difficult passages with some (coughs) joy, looking forward to things we have in you. In your Son's name, Amen. Hebrews. Some of you believe that Paul wrote Hebrews, some of you believe that we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Um, So I'm going to say the writer of Hebrews when I refer to it. But if you read through Hebrews, you know it's it's a book like Romans, full of things, full of difficulties. And if you'll scan down the page, Hebrews 5 goes right into Hebrews 6. And Hebrews 6 is one of those passages that people, it's like Romans 9. Hebrews 6 is like about assurance of salvation. Can you lose your salvation? And immediately you're setting up your weaponry. You're saying, okay, I know. I hold this view. Someone over here, I hold this view. <clears throat> but I want you all to admire the pastor for being willing to preach through this passage. I mean, of course, it's been a long time. I looked at my notes, it's been almost 10 years, so maybe I'm a coward. But it's really, actually, not really. I don't, And I don't want that, you could believe you could lose your salvation, but I wouldn't base it on this text you can believe that you're eternally secure, but I wouldn't base it on this text. But something is going on. Something else is going on. And sometimes when we have a proof text passage, a passage that when you get into that argument, that passage always comes up, nobody gets to see that passage anymore for anything else. I think even my footnotes here in my Harper Study Bible, um... The footnote on this page is, for 2,000 years, Christians have disagreed about the answer to the question, can a man who has been truly converted lose his salvation? And the long footnote. So there, half of the page, written by Harold Linzel, half of the page tells you to think about this when you look at this passage. Let's look at Hebrews 5.1. Let's work our way through this, not too slowly, say that's a lot of text, Evan. I don't write these sermons. The writer of Hebrews wrote the sermon, so blame him or her. For, I said that for you, you honky liberals out there. That. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's just a basic definition of a priest. A priest is a mediator. On behalf of men, he mediates man to the God, whatever the God, whatever the temple. The priest is always the same thing. He is doing the things that the regular guy can't do because of his expertise in that sort of craft. For every high priest... He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. He has something he shares with his congregation. He is a man like they are. He has the same flaws. And in many cases, that's what you find even in non-priestly circles, people who've got very obvious flaws as ministers, um, they go into the ministry of, because, you know, who knows more than I who have failed so miserably? Child rearing. All my kids are disobedient, so I'm going to go into a ministry in child rearing. And we buy that many times because we like the priest. We think in priesthood terms. We like the priest who understands us because they share our flaws. Now, if I, if I need to remind you, a few verses, like two verses before this, what I read. It said, For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sinning. It was good enough to be tempted like we, not fail like we. The thing about the priests, all all the earthly priests, is they are you might say equally ignorant and wayward Christ was not ignorant and wayward. He was tempted to be ignorant and wayward, yet without the sin. So coming into this chapter, he's already set Christ apart from this other um, other priestly endeavors. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. And one does not take the honor upon himself, but he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So he's describing what priestcraft is about and what positives are involved, what negatives. He shares your weaknesses, but, but then he has to pay for his weaknesses too. His priestcraft has to also mediate for him as well. And priests get called to this duty. And some of this... You say, is this a sermon about whether all souls, Christians, should have priests? And your eyes narrow, looking at me. You say, Evan has always wanted a clerical collar. He's got a steeple. What's next? Choir boys? You know, smells and bells? Robes? Is this, you know, opening? Well, I'm an unreconstructed, radical Anabaptist. I don't think that's going to happen. But here it is, that we have huge slices of the Christian church and the nominal Christian church that have priests. We do not have priests. It's not the same as a pastor. So you're just getting settled into this passage. He's laying out the groundwork on something. He says in verse 5, So also, remember, the priests are called by God. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. As he says also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it just got weird or it just got kind of real in terms of our growth as Christians because Melchizedek he had just introduced that Aaron was called to the priesthood and so these other priests were called to the priesthood and Christ was called to the priesthood but guess what? He was called a son and he was called as a priest of a different order not Aaronic not the, Christ is not even the tribe of Levi. The Levites, the Aaronic priesthood, were in that line. God had appointed them that at, right after the um, Exodus. And so you're looking at the word Melchizedek. It's one of those names, at least my Bible, so the RSV puts pronunciation helps there. And when you need pronunciation help on a name... Go, okay, there's a name. There's a name. Nothing like Steve or John, Edith. It's Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, for those of you who have read your Bibles, was a priest of the Most High God, not a Jew, from the place called Salem, and he welcomed. Abraham, back in the days when he went to war with the kings uh, to release Lot from him being captured by these kings of Babylon. And Melchizedek was given the tithe by Abraham. It's a key point later in Hebrews. You can read about it in Genesis. Um, it's weird. And the writer of Hebrews gets really weird about it a little later. I'll let you read it on your own as to... What's so weird about it? I'll just let the weird name rest on you now. A weird name and a new order of priesthood. Now, I know that the elders of the LDS church, when they show up at your door, they claim to be, you know, in the line of Melchizedek. But that's just crazy 1800s make-believe, okay? Um, This is about the Christ, and over on the left hand side, it says, um, Melchizedek. What? What do I, what do, I do with that? Because it, it, I would suspect that if I started a sermon about Melchizedek, you would go home going, hmm, well, that was a wasted Sunday. Verse 7 In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard for his godly fear. Have you ever thought of Jesus' prayer in the garden of Gethsemane? Lord, have this cup pass for me, if it be your will. That he was asking to be saved from death. And guess what happened? You ever struggle with God at not answering your prayers? And you'll wonder why he doesn't. Well, mostly it's because he doesn't like you. But with Jesus, you could generally assume that God liked Jesus. And Jesus, in chapter 4, it said he hadn't done anything wrong yet without sin. Uh, So here he is, Son of God, on the ground, not sinning, saying a prayer Dear Jesus, dear God, he doesn't pray to Jesus, dear God, um, life's pretty tough, had a rough day, I'm going to get arrested. Uh, they're going to want to kill me please don't let them kill me and God says no your your head's still swimming from Melchizedek another question in the next verse arises uh, God doesn't even answer Jesus' prayers in the positive all the time why would you expect he is my whole view of prayer off And he was heard. It's not that God missed it. He was heard for his godly fear. God says, Yes, I'll take that under advisement. You don't want to die. But I think you're going to have to. That's my will. That's why you're there. That's the point to sacrifice you. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience. And you go, oh, man, what a rough paragraph. My Melchizedek, I don't even like the name. I'm not going to name the next kid Melchizedek, because it's a girl. I realize, but you could come with a feminine version, Melchizedek, or something like that. Not a popular name, not one picked up by, you know, homeschool families who want to go all Bible. Nobody uses Melchizedek. It's always Jedediah, And then you have Jesus being rejected by God in prayer. Absolute faith. Absolute righteousness. He didn't want what was going to happen to happen. And he took it to God in prayer. And then he learned. Jesus learned stuff. I mean, did you kind of believe that Jesus was sort of, you know, there was a body there and and God just beamed all of God into Jesus? It says in Luke, I believe, he grew in stature and favor with God and man. Jesus Christ matured. When he was a teenager, he was tempted like teens were tempted. When he was an eight-year-old, he was tempted like eight-year-olds were tempted. In every manner, like we, without sin. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Because that's what Jesus says in the prayer. Not my will, but thine be done. And he meant it. And he learned what obedience is. When you say to God, Dear Lord, what's the Janis Joplin song? Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? So you're petitioning God in great fervency for the Mercedes. And then you say, but not my will, but thine be done. You say it, perhaps, because you don't want to ever feel like your prayers aren't answered, so you give God an out. If it didn't happen, he didn't want it to happen. The other option is he wasn't listening to your prayers. Here, He was listening to Christ's prayers, and he said no. And Jesus did say, not my will, but thine be done. But that's part of him learning the obedience when he laid that before that he wanted God's will more than he wanted not to die. And he wanted not to die. He knew what the will of God was. He knew why he had come. He had told his disciples what was up. And now when it came down to it, night before it all happens... He's praying to get out of it, because it meant that much to him. It threatened him that much. We were reading through um, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe a few weeks ago, and a very affecting scene when Aslan walks off through the woods with Susan and Lucy, um, uh, just overcome with it. He knows he's going to rise from the dead. Just like Jesus knew he was going to rise from the dead. But that's a rough day. You felt it. You knew the dentist was going to be done at some point. But in between that some point, when your mouth feels normal again, and you're grateful for dentists, you've got to go through it. Somebody camped out in your mouth with a jackhammer. Learning obedience. And being made perfect, oh hey, what? Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Bracketed by that weird name. Da-da, order of Melchizedek, again, a bunch of difficult theological, what about Jesus? What? Sunday school wasn't right? Maybe this is why we don't have Sunday school. Is because I learned an awful lot of untrue things in Sunday school. Very dear things on the flannel graph, very nice things in the open little books. Things to color. I had a lot of good time coloring. I stayed in the lines because I keep the rules. But the things I learned in Sunday school had very little to do with what's in the Bible. And these are wonderful passages. And I'm not going to tell you what the answer is to any of them. Because the writer of Hebrews doesn't plan on telling you, really. He's got some points to make, but he wants to address something beforehand. That is, verse 11, about this we have much to say, which is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Let's deal with this problem first. Now, whoever, we generally thought that the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who need to have their Jewishness, the Jewishness of Jewish Christians always seems to get in the way. And so so the things he's throwing against their wall, not the priesthood of Aaron, but the priesthood of Melchizedek, that's, that's difficult. And he tells them, yeah, we could talk about this some more, but this is hard to explain to you because of something that gets in the way, and it's not the difficulty of the explanation. It's hard to explain since. The audience is in a place where they can't hear well about it. Now, that's what we're examining this morning. We're not examining the Melchizedekian priesthood, we're not examining what Jesus' relationship was to maturing and growth, what Jesus' relationship to prayer is, what, you know, we, those are very valid questions, There's very valid things to th- think about. And the writer of Hebrews agrees. But let's find out what this dullness is, because when we see it in others, we want to minister to it, because the writer of Hebrews is trying to minister to it in the Hebrews. If it's there in us, we want to undo it, this dullness of hearing, because we don't want to be looking at passages going, "Um, this is too much for me. Jesus says some things to his disciples at various points that was designed to get that response out of some people. And when they would say, uh, when he talked about... uh, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. I mean, what if you're in a, you know, kind of a wacky little religious group that meets, and Christianity never existed, so. And here you are in North Idaho at the end of the imperial U.S. age, and, and some teacher arises who starts talking about cannibalism and eating the body of the teacher and drinking his blood. Okay, too much twilight, you say. Too much zombie apocalypse stuff. Too much... What's, what's, you say, don't you think those young people ought to get into a different group? Something a little more wholesome. Something like the Rotary. Something, something you know, American, boring. But no, you want to go off and you join some... I, I had this, some experiences with the Paul Christ... Family down in Southern California back in the 70s, uh, you know, nuts, completely nuts. They they didn't believe in any sex. They didn't believe in um, uh, any meat. They smoked cigarettes like a going out of style. He ended up Paul Christ ended up strangling himself to death against a date palm uh, with a chain around his neck. Strange people, and you say. What's your feeling about all the weirdness that can start to come at you out of Christianity? Things that, that doesn't sound like the religion I would like to have. That doesn't sound like the religion I, I really currently easily understand. And the writer of Hebrews says, yeah, I just dropped some things there. Some arcane stuff, some of the cool stuff, some of the, just a lot of stuff. But something is in the way. For though, verse 12, by this time you want to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of God's word. The dullness of hearing is the failure to hold to the first principles. Got that? You become dull of hearing because you have a need that someone teach you the first principles again. You need milk, not solid food for everyone who lives on milk, is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. So the need to learn the first things adequately when you try to give a small baby um, well, there was a, the, the car baby was at uh, the party last night. Just like uh, three weeks, right? Just incapable of anything. You know, Phil was there rocking it to sleep. I mean, it's just like, that's humanity, really? Theodore, for heaven's sake. And then there was uh, the Hutchisons, uh with their baby What's that kid's name? Tubo? Um Ivy. A big ivy. Uh, Tyler walked by in a chainmail shirt, and Ivy found that—I mean, fingers, links, and chainmail—that hand went into it like Velcro. It's like perfect for a kid to climb up anything. Because they found out, and you realize those learning experiences a baby has when they're just on the bottle or nursing, whatever it is—you know, you are a waste of humanity and then they figure out chewing to mom's displeasure and then they get those little jars of Gerber usually moms seem to think I'll give it squash because I don't know any better and I don't realize that adults don't want it, so I'm going to give it to kids because you know the difference because God intended you have pears and bananas because you could see what a child likes, they don't like the squash Nor the peas, they want the pears and bananas. Now this is a lesson you can take home. You're not going to remember the rest of this, I realize. But while you are an infant, while you are on milk, in the Christian world, you are unskilled in the word of righteousness. Because you need to be taught, you need to be fed this milk until it gets through your head, whatever this milk is. And unskilled in the word of righteousness and not trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. That's what happens to you when you get to solid food. Then you start realizing how Christianity works. So the dullness of hearing, going on to the deeper things, whatever the deeper things may be, and may include, and what questions may be answered, we really kinda need to know if any of our friends, or our church, or ourselves, or, or whatever, are really not, they might want to talk about interesting things, they might want to talk about end times, and, and uh, what's heaven like, and is God a woman, things like that, but they're really not ready for it, and this is too hard to explain. So, do we have an idea what the first principles, the dullness is the need for first principles being remediated, and while they're being mediated, that not being answered in you yet, that failure to come to grips with the first principle means that righteousness in understanding the word of it and understanding good from evil, the struggles, you say, how come I... How come I have a hard time sinning? It's because you're bad. That's the simple answer. The idea of being bad is not understanding what the deliverance from evil that Christianity is. Because first principles cover that. Now look at what it says. Therefore, since this is the case, since these Hebrews that the writer was writing to or preaching the message to is setting himself aside this obligation. He said, you know, i would be great to go on pursuit of this, but it's going to be hard for you to understand. You need to have some basic things addressed. Therefore, he wants, he wants to encourage them to leave them behind. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, then he describes what the basic first principles of God's word is. Not laying, again, a foundation... Of, what's it? Repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. He said, "Well, yeah, I knew that. I've been to Sunday school. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God." Now, what just happened to us is, as a as a church gets comfortable. Part of the pressure to go into more and more liturgy or have a priest or or have some means by which forgiveness is issued to you or a list of, you know, you join the church and they give you a list of duties, obligations. The person that the writer of Hebrews is describing is someone skilled in the word of righteousness and trained by practice to distinguish good from evil most of the questions that are out there amongst the saints, if they see a clear statement of scripture, don't do that. Say, well, what if it was this? Well, why don't you tell me what if it was that? Don't Aren't you trained by practice to know good from evil? When when uh, where is Roy? There, read, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Can you tell the difference between things that are helpful and things that aren't? Build up and things that don't? Why not? Have you not been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil? We are much happier to step back from God, get an earthly priest with a clerical collar who will shake the dead chicken over the altar, grant you forgiveness, tell God it's okay, and give you a list of things to do because wouldn't that be simpler? When a person is like that, that's why people who don't know Jesus Christ collect in churches that offer them that. And guess what? They have not repented from dead works. They have not turned to faith towards God. Because you're religious, you want to know what to do, right? What's this church want me to do? How many times do I need to be baptized? In whose name? In what river? Head upstream, head downstream. I don't, what, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to be a Christian. And a Christian who has been leveraged to a better place, moved past the basic things to show you have learned repentance from dead works. Now, what's interesting there is what you think you heard and what you heard. Repentance from dead works. You saw the word repentance, right? Repentance? What do you repent of? Generally speaking, sin, right? What's sin? Drinking too much, sleeping around, uh, pride. What else? Drug addiction. Uh, cheating on your taxes. Uh Anything else? It's probably a longer list. Malice. Let's just say, you can come with sins, right? You, you, you know the list. Didn't tell you to repent of that. Told you to repent of dead works. The book of Hebrews is about this. The basic thing of Christianity, the thing that most religious people need to be retaught because they're babes, is this Christianity is in this most essential form a denial of works righteousness. Of Where you keep the law. You keep the rules. You do the right ceremonies. You gotta repent of that. I didn't know I was supposed to repent of being good. Being good that way, yeah, you're supposed to repent of dead works. And you're supposed to live by faith. What does it say in Galatians? Are you so foolish, having begun with the spirit? Are you now ending with the flesh? Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul says, this is a basic problem. People think that it's a religion. I need the list and I need the priest and I need to know what I'm supposed to do next. And it's Christianity saying, "No, this is unlike anything else." And one of its basic tenets is that would keep you dull as a Christian is if you believe you don't need to repent from your dead works. You don't need to live by faith. That's what, it, I mean, if you're pulling out, dull of hearing, you need to hear again the first principles. Let's leave behind those first principles if we can because these other things really are beneficial and we want to go on to that, so we want to encourage you. So let's not go back and do these things again if we don't have to. What are those things? Repentance from dead works, faith towards God. Have you got that worked out yet? Are you a babe in arms that needs to, because I still, I still constantly, from Christians that I have had a ministry to for a decade still have and you know, you've heard this from me before, you say, he goes on about this a lot that we are saved by faith, by grace through faith it's the article of the Reformation we are not saved by works, nor should we live our Christian life by works we're supposed to be people who are trained in the word of righteousness and who know by practice to distinguish good from evil. And to go with that that edifies, to go with that that builds up. That's where you should be, the deeper Christian life. No, let's, let's be dumb and not repent of dead works. Let's reintroduce dead works to our church. Yeah, I know you guys don't show up on time. You don't. Okay. Paul does, because he makes the coffee. He was here before I was this morning. You just wander in, whatever. Does it frustrate me? Uh-huh. Yeah. Doesn't really. You guys say, well, what would we you do about it? Let's make a rule. That the front seats will have really comfy, comfy cushions and recline. The whole pew will recline <laughs> about three rows back. Then there will be barbed wire on the seats. So, getting here depends whether you get the barbed wire or the cushion. You would show up. We can create a rule system. We can create a, a demand. You're going to hell unless you show up on time. Oh. We want, we're, we're grateful that you all come. That you, you, that you come here. There's other bodies in town. Dear believers elsewhere. Fellowship is good. I'm glad you're here to fellowship. Very glad. Doesn't matter when you show up. Show up right at the end of the service. Fellowship with the saints. Being trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. Do you know the difference between churches. You're going to go on in life somewhere else. You're not always going to live here. And uh, when you go on, look for a body of believers who don't seem to think that this basic thing of Christianity needs to be ignored. When they try to live the life of the church by dead works. Now, he says, with instruction, it's just you can parse this sentence out on your own time, but it says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God, verse 2, with instruction about ablutions, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Some people think that that's the list of some of the basic things. Okay? Ablutions. Washings. or actually some, the King James I think says baptisms. That's what it means. Baptisms. So all the different baptisms. What different baptisms? Laying on of hands. Nobody ever does that here. We haven't laid hands on anybody. I laid hands on a baby. Back when the first Tate baby was born, he dedicated, what's his name? Oliver? Dedicated Oliver and laid hands on Oliver and dedicated him. But does anybody know what laying on of hands does? Okay. Here's the pastor. doesn't have a clue. Uh, The resurrection of the dead, you kind of hope that that one works, but uh, an eternal judgment. So generally I think he is saying, we're not going to lay the foundation again. Let's not do repentance from dead works and faith. Let's go on to washings, laying on of hands, eternal judgment, resurrection, understanding those things, and this we'll do if God permits. You can believe that's all part of the basic, or you can believe he splits it up to point to where he's going. Now, this is where the passage comes that everybody thinks, including the footnote writer of my Bible, thinks is about whether a Christian can lose their salvation and on what grounds, if they can. Verse 4. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy, since they crucify the Son of God on their own account, and hold him up to contempt. For land which has drunk the rain that often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. So when you're talking to someone about, can I lose my salvation? And they say, let's turn to Hebrews 6, shall we? And start with verse, read starting with verse 4. You can never repent. Now, it's sort of like they say, oh, hmm. So it's like the unforgivable sin. And they immediately run to the unforgivable sin. You know, you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So this must be in some way blaspheming the Holy Spirit somehow, and they work up this whole theology based on what crime can I commit that God will never forgive. Ever. But we're reading through a passage. We just looked at what the writer of Hebrews was saying was problematic here. And he's saying, you know, there's some difficult things I need to explain. That the dullness of hearing because you have not repented or need to hear about repentance from dead works again That you should see that word in red it didn't occur in red in my bible but I made it red for it is impossible to restore again to repentance he's been talking about repentance it's not saying Necessarily, that God won't forgive. He's trying to say you can't get them back to a place where they give up. Because repentance from is turning away, right? The change of mind, the turning away from, I repent of this. And in this passage, the repentance, that which you turn away from, is dead works. The problem the writer of Hebrews is facing is the, in, uh, the influx of dead works into the Christian church. The reinstitution of Jewish ideas. The Jewish law. And like Paul, he was standing up against it and saying, it's hard to get this person, not that God won't forgive; you might still believe that, but that they won't repent it's impossible to get these people to repent if once they have this person is clearly a Christian look at that I, you know you can't they've tasted, enlightened tasted the heavenly gift partaken of the Holy Spirit and it doesn't get handed out to non-believers tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come they've seen it all, I mean if you had a Christian life like that you'd be going, yeah, I'm somebody I'm somebody hi boy now I mean Christians, they first they fight over whether, is it a Christian is it a... people who don't believe you can salvation argue that this guy is not a Christian people that do believe go, no it's obvious that he is, I think it's not about that this is about what happens to the kind of mind that does not understand the basic things of your faith. That we repent of the law, we live by faith. Sin shall have no dominion over you, for you're not under law, you're under grace. That you're, if you don't define it that way, you could have experienced Jesus Christ, enjoyed the Holy Spirit, got pulled into the body of the believers and if, they, if you commit apostasy and he, apostasy is turning away from the true and the good and what's on his mind is repentance of dead works and faith if they then commit apostasy since they crucify the son of God on their own account It means that they, in their mind, they have taken the death of Jesus Christ and held it up to be nothing. Because that's where the faith and the grace reside. And hold him up to contempt. I have the passage out of Galatians here on the side. Galatians 2. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. If you choose to make your righteousness by the law there's two problems. One, you're really wrong. And two, and you might have encountered this, when people start to, you know, first they went through the Jesus people and they kind of oh man, the openness, the powers of the age to come and life together and boy, it's great. And then we have got to get serious about growing up in theological circles. And so they started thinking about theology and getting it all wrong. And people who went back to the law, it's Freaking impossible to get them to give up that piety. It is impossible to restore them to repentance. They think if you leave the goodness of the powers of the kingdom behind and pick up the law again, it's because you hold Jesus Christ and his death in some kind of emotional contempt, the apostasy that you make you think is more spiritual. You think it's more righteous. You think it's more godly. How will you ever repent? You won't. And guess what? You're near to being cursed. The most righteous and pious of people, near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. You say, well, what about their salvation? Well, that's a different question. I look at that and go, well, they're near to being cursed. They're going to get burned. Because I do believe in purgation. I don't believe in purgatory, but I do believe in purgation. I believe that you will, that which you die with, the sins that you the stupidity, the whatever it was you took, the to glory. Look, Jesus I made you a mud pie with my life. Well, actually that's not the right image. I made a matchstick temple. And Jesus says, yeah, we have a test for those. <laughs> What we do is we take just one of the matches and see if this burns. Oh my gosh, it did. You lost everything. And that was really big. It was really pretty. It had great ceremonies. But they're all gone, aren't they? But it says in Corinthians, every man's work will be tested as with fire, and if it burns up, he will suffer loss, but his soul will be saved. Your souls will be saved. That's my position. You don't have to agree with that. You're near to being cursed. Your end is to be destroyed. But these are people that will not repent. Don't become one of those people. And Paul looks at these people. He's not Paul, excuse me, giveaway. I don't think it was Paul. That was a, it could be a 40 slip, I suppose. I think it was Apollos who wrote Hebrews. But. Though we speak thus, verse 9. Because it's like, oh, man, does he think that about us? Are we that kind of awful people? Well, no, because we're the cool church. Though we speak thus, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. We might, you might find, well, I'm one of those people, though, who needs to understand repentance from dead works and faith towards God. I do need to understand. Well, eat that... Eat that food, but remember we're moving on to maturity. We want to go on to other things. And the, th- the way I'm measuring it is that the word of righteousness becomes clear to me, and that I, by practice, start to distinguish good from evil. I'm not always going, where's the list? Am I allowed to do this? I'm in Washington, can I smoke this? What? Where's your conscience? For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work. And the love which you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. I've met a lot of Christian churches, Christian people, who are what you call dear believers. Dumb as a brick. Dear believers. Hearts for other people. Want to be, you know, they listen to your stories. They talk to you. And they they pick you up. And they dust you off. And they help you along. And that's who these people are. Serving the saints. And we desire, verse 11, that each one of you, not the group of you, each one of you, that means each one of you or each one of the persons you're ministering to is going to need to do that, to show the same earnestness that which got that love and that work and that service out of you because that's basic Christianity, but you can't really go on because you don't understand where righteousness dwells. Use that same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, there's a big movement out there in Christian circles over recent decades about, you know, you know all the promises in the scripture. And it, somehow Christians are supposed to run around claiming every promise, like promises are made just blanket, and anybody gets them if you just realize you were, they were made. You inherit the promises through patience. Through a certain process. Imitate those people who have gone on ahead. We talked and prayed about those Christians who are older, who are suffering through the last years of their life, and, and they've got a lot to give. They've got a lot of understanding out there. Imitate them if they have found the way to live the Christian life through practice, knowing good from evil. Are they skilled in the word of righteousness? For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And if you go back and look in Genesis at that passage, he says, I swear by my own name. Saying, I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently endured, obtained the promise. Men indeed swear by a greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he interposed with an oath so that through two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible that God should prove false, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope that is set before us. That's almost Pauline in its run on quality, but what is what is even being said he said he's hanging i feel better there are people out there who need the, the, the milk and even if you might need the milk i think you're those people who are going to be able to be built into the next and next and next stage and i want you to realize that that waiting for that promise is an involved christian life that depends on god's participation in the promise and his unchangeable qualities that we might have a strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We say, what's the sermon about this morning? Realize what Christianity is. Because if you don't, whatever you conceive of the deeper walk is going to be ministered to you. And if you think the deeper walk is getting your some kind of tourniquet applied to the rear of your boxer shorts and it twisted into a knot so that you can have good theology you know good really a difficult theology theology that hurts you and hurts everybody else or do you walk in righteousness guided because you are a new creature the hope that is set before us and the promises of God you have available to you if you realize you have to get past first principles you have got to have accepted the first principles, because if you go back and renege on those first principles, you might not be fixable. I mean, just saying. Some people were, I might have accidentally blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Okay, okay, calm down. Not a likelihood. Not a big thing. I don't know many, many people going, I think the Holy Spirit is a buffoon. You say, I I wouldn't say that. Well, it's an illustration, but you don't ever get to that state. You might of, say Jesus Christ in a certain moment of anger but you didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit don't be afraid of that be far more afraid that when you attend any given church of believers they might all be standing around waiting to be issued no repentance from dead works yes you have to repent of your sins too but you have to repent of your righteousness as well okay So there's this hope of the Christian life that is glorious here and this stirring promise that we might have a strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He's come full circle around to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. You know that thing he was talking about before when he said, oh yeah, this is going to be some confusing stuff. And, I, and then he goes in this digression about the direction we need to grow, what we need to be confident of and have figured out. And he says, Jesus has gone as a forerunner. That's what a priest does. He enters the Holy of Holies for us, carrying our sins. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, there's that name again, but hopefully a little less problematic to us. Not that you understand, but it's not the threat of not knowing. It's the hope of knowing. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Lead us, each of us, to the place where the milk has been drunk. We've looked at it carefully. We rejoice that we are set free from dead works. We rejoice that we have faith in your Son. And we'd ask that we, in the promises that you give, will be able to pursue the life that we have, the righteousness that we have in your Son and in this kingdom. Bless us each in your Son's name. Amen.